This is Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you to understand and speak the language of our culture and to address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. I am joined today with a special guest all the way from London, Ontario. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dale Layard. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is great to have you with us. Now, you are a research professor at Western University. Tell us a little bit about the work that you do, and I'm sure a number of our listeners are wondering whether or not you're involved at all with COVID-19 research. Okay. Yeah, I'm trained as a biochemist. Uh, I did my PhD at University of British Columbia, um, followed by a stint as what we call a postdoctoral fellowship at Caltech in Los Angeles. And I went from there and I established my original lab at McGill University in Montreal. And my area of interest is studying how cells actually talk to each other. They establish this ability to have these small channels where one cell can actually uh, send messages to a second cell that it actually adheres to. And it's interesting because these channels are essentially in every tissue, every organ of your body. So uh, over the years, we've studied this area at quite a large length, and we now understand that the, the, the components of these channels are actually made up of a series of proteins called connexins. And, and you can kind of get the sense of the word connecting connection. Uh, so connexins, there's 21 members of these. And um, many of these uh, molecules, in, when they're encoded by these genes that encode them, uh, they can ha- have mutations in these uh, genes that encode these connexins. And that can get, lead to a number of diseases. And a common example of this one would be hearing loss. So, for instance, if a, a couple comes in and they feel like their child may not be hearing well, there's a, about a one in two chance that they may actually have a mutation in the gene that encodes one of these connexins. And that turns out to be the most common uh, form of disease associated with these molecules that we work on. But these molecules are also very important in cancer and a number of diseases um, because in cancer, what happens, the cells sort of lose the ability to talk to each other. And as a result, they end up growing out of control, and therefore you have a tumor, and the tumor subsequently may be able to metastasize and become a life-threatening disease. So we're interested in these channels at the very basics. Uh, How do they work? There is no COVID connection here. Um, We're not an infectious disease laboratory, although I do follow the COVID uh, world from the point of view of a scientist, sort of trying to navigate all the information that's coming out, much like most people do. I guess my only advantage is I know some people who are infectious disease people, and I get information I think is a little bit more filtered and probably a little bit more accurate. So that's sort of an overview of kind of what, what we work on. We've got lots to talk about today. We're going to be getting into the subject of Christianity and science and what it looks like to be a Christian scientist. Now, you have uh, been a longtime friend of the show, uh, Apologetics Canada. You and I met out at the Apologetics Canada conference. And so it's been great getting to know you and seeing how your faith is an intricate part of your work as a scientist and that you don't see those things as being separate. Uh, And we're going to get into that today because I can't tell you the number of people we've interacted with, particularly scientists, who go to church on Sunday, you know, in a pre-COVID world, (laughs) you know, and they put on their their Christian hat. And then when they head off to the laboratory, they take that hat off and they put on the science hat and they make sure that those two hats never touch each other because they don't get along, it's supposed. It's kind of like they just live in this bifurcated world, which is completely unnecessary. And we're going we're gonna to get into that in a moment. Uh, I should just mention, though, I think this is, this is important to state. I mean, you're not just a research professor, but you've actually won a number of awards, including Premier Research Excellence Award, the Medical Research Council Scientist Award, Faculty Scholar Award, Dean's Award, Excellent Research, Distinguished University Professor Award, Tier 1 Canadian Research Chair. Uh, And then in 2016, you had the honor of being inducted as a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. So I say all that just to note for you listeners 
Dale knows what he's talking about. He uh, he is a great scientist doing incredible work, and it really is a privilege to have you on the show. Now, like I said, I have a number of things I want to get into, but I uh, I know listeners want me to ask this question, so I'm going to. And that is, are you hopeful that a vaccine is going to be effective against COVID-19? Uh, yes, I remain very hopeful. There's probably 10 good candidates that are in phase three trials now. And for the listener who doesn't necessarily know how this works, uh, typically the way the phase system works, phase one is a small group of people to basically ask the question, is it toxic? Does it do harm? Uh, phase two is when you you expand that cohort of people to maybe a, just a few thousand and ask the question, does it show that it's working? In the case of a vaccine, what you have to do is you have to generate antibodies against a component of the virus that effectively will neutralize the virus. And so we call that, is it working or is it uh, effective? And then phase three is when you take a much bigger study, often about 30,000 people or so, and ask the question, is it actually showing that it's protective for people who might become exposed to the virus because they have sufficient antibody production in their bodies to actually prevent them from getting the disease and getting sick? So right now, there's about 10, maybe 12 vaccines worldwide that are in phase three. So this is the final phase before actually being deployed. And there's still a lot of hope that that many of these will work. But in essence, you only need maybe one or two to work well, and and they can be deployed worldwide over time. The issue here, of course, is once you find one that works, it takes a while to build a resource and distribution program up so that you can actually get this distributed to you and I and to any anyone who will be willing to take it. And that usually takes several months. And so there will be a sort of a, I would say, a bit of a trickling out effect. Uh, maybe frontline workers will get it first or be available to them first. The vulnerable populations may be um, identified that will get uh, the first uh, versions of vaccines because of just getting enough uh, made to deploy. But I'm very hopeful that uh, that in the winter we'll be seeing this happening. I think I, I would like to hear before Christmas that one is actually shown to be quite effective. And then in January, February into the spring, we'll see this uh, roll out over time. And, and it may turn out that there might be two, three, four of these vaccines that might be effective. Because remember, the, the, one, the one thing I often tell people that I think is pretty exciting, this is the largest single research ever in the history of the planet. So there is nothing that's ever happened in the history of the planet that has deployed more research intensity than this issue. And so every country's involved uh, that has a research program, the labs that can work on it are working on it and the governments that are investing in it. So this is uh, by far and away the most intense research effort ever deployed. So uh, I think we're seeing uh, something that's pretty remarkable from that point of view. Yeah, it's remarkable to me on a couple fronts. One is it's remarkable. Yeah, you're right. As we've come together as a world to combat it. It's also remarkable that something so small and simple, it has brought us all to our knees. I remember our cartoon when I was a kid. I don't know if it was a, uh, a Warner Brothers or something, but it was these two characters were trying to beat up each other and one kept getting bigger and bigger. And then the other one decided to get smaller and smaller and entered the body of the big person and ended up getting sick. And, and it's almost that's the analogy here, right? That mm-hmm. um, big is not necessarily more mighty. And in this case, I think we saw and we're seeing that here's a virus that's very small, uh, very simple in many ways, um, but very powerful to evoke disease. And and so I think there's, uh, you know, and, and, and almost and from a creation point of view, this is an uh, an interesting concept of how something so small can be so powerful. So it, it's pretty intriguing to think about it from the science. But of course, uh, we live in a world where we have to find ways to knock these viruses down that become uh, huge pathologies to, to the human um, population. And, and that's the state we're in now. I think this is a good jumping off point for us. I mean, I've got lots of other questions that I'd love to throw at you with with regards to COVID, but we'll stay we'll stay on track. And uh, I think it's a good jumping off point to really talk about what it means to be a scientist in the 21st century, but particularly as a, as a Christian. Would you agree that science for many has become a kind of religion in and of itself? You know, because I find this interesting, even in the midst of COVID, 
that this is where a lot of people place their hope. Now, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing to hope that, you know, scientists can find answers to things like COVID-19. But, you know, from your time in the sciences, how prevalent is, to be very specific, is the idea of scientism? Yeah, um, I, you know, certainly in my world, I don't think of science as a religion. I would say most of the people that I know well that study science are totally committed to the scientific initiative. And, you know, this is a process uh, where you have evidence for something, you create hypotheses around that, and then you look to see if you can make some predictions from that hypothesis. And ultimately, you need to do experimental testing to see if your hypothesis is correct or wrong. I think scientists are committed to the recipe of what it is to be a scientist. And, and I think they're committed to the principles of trying to figure out how things work. And, and, I, and I think that's very noble, and it, and it is what it should be. I guess the question maybe you're really getting at is, does it become so all-encompassing that, in fact, they don't want to consider something bigger than what science can deliver on? And I think uh, when we think about theology and we think about God and we think about creation, the thought patterns have to go into something that's much bigger. And I think maybe scientists sometimes think, well, we don't have to do that because science ultimately is going to explain everything. I don't adhere to that position, but some people might say that. Uh, so I, I see what you're getting at, and I think this is helpful to to view science is that science is this method of research. And, and I think, it, you know, you've kind of given a bit of a definition here of, of how we understand science, but it's pretty neutral. It's what you're bringing to that process that's really going to become that, you know, I guess the 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 religion or the scientism. Yeah. And, and, and I think... Um like scientists by definition should maintain a position of objectivity. So we should be open to understanding the natural world as best we can understand it. And by what I mean by that is that uh, when you create hypothesis, you want to be able to create it in a way that you can actually test it and see if the observations that you're seeing and the experimentation that you do lead you to an answer or a better understanding or a deeper set of knowledge or discoveries that are going to be useful. I think scientists are committed to that recipe and don't necessarily have an agenda, if you want to think of it that way. And I think when you start thinking about scientism or that, and I think from the Christian perspective, and I've heard this from the Christian perspective, is sometimes people think, well, it's agenda-driven, that they're there to kind of, scientists are trying to find information that would take away the need of God or the need for a God or or that there's some kind of hidden agenda around that. And, and I can't say that that's never the case, but certainly from the people that I know, I would say that's not the case. I think people go into it very objectively in trying to understand how things work. And in my, my own case, I study these small channels of how cells send information back and forth to each other that tells the next cell what to do. And I think that's a beautiful illustration of how understanding God's creation. And so here's something that's been created in a way that does something very specialized. And I'm an observer of that. And I'm studying God's book of nature, trying to understand how things work. And I think as the more you, you see how sophisticated that is, the more the wonder goes up and the awe goes up. And you go, wow, that is just really good. You know, that's really clever. And, and so I think in many ways, uh, I, for me personally, I find that the science actually drives a lot of my wonder of the universe and how things work and how incredible things are. Even though scientists who are, are not uh, people of faith uh, still marvel at the wonder of it as well. Um, they just don't adhere that that may actually come from God, but rather through a natural selection of processes that are, are godless. And I think that's where the sort of the division happens. And now, listeners, before we continue, a message from our very own Steve Kim. Hi, listeners. As of the date of this episode's release, today is the last day you can give towards the Double Your Impact matching campaign. All gifts you give until midnight tonight will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor up to $100,000. For those of you who have given already, we thank you for enabling us to do our work. For those who would like to give or give again, make your gift do double the work by going to apologeticscanada.com forward slash donate to give. On behalf of Apologetics Canada... 
Thank you for your support. And now back to our podcast. Yeah, it's interesting. My time in academia, I've kind of seen, a, you know, there's just a, I think sometimes we can easily polarize views or think that, you know, whether it be the sciences or whatever, that there's that there's a polarized view, whether it be, you know, theist versus atheist or something like that. And my, my time has just shown that's just not the case. There is just every flavor in between of individuals as you get to know them and the work that they do and why they do it and how, how they're viewing it. As we get into this question, though, we wanna, we're want we going to get deeper into, as, as a Christian, what, what does it mean to be a Christian scientist? And what are some of the issues that we really need to address today? Because one of the things I've appreciated about you as I've gotten to know your heart is you you love the church and there is a concern for young people. It's the same concern I had when I got into apologetics ministry, that there are unnecessary challenges to the faith that actually exist in the church. And, and they're particularly challenging for those who head off into the sciences. And so that's one of the reasons why I think this conversation is so important. To get into that, let's start with your story. Tell me about your journey as, as a Christian and then your journey into the sciences. And where did you find uh, a challenge in that you know, process of, of maintaining your Christian belief and being a scientist? Yeah, I grew up, uh, fortunately, I grew up in a Christian home on Prince Edward Island. And so I come from a Christian family. I became a Christian very early on in life. And I was academically interested in advanced studies, and I, and I went through high school, decided to go to university. I guess it was at university where uh, my science, or interest in science, I should say, and my Christianity started to um, collide, and where I thought, wow, is this, am I going to run into some serious trouble here in terms of having um, my science and, and my my faith come head to head and having to choose between them one or the other. And and I think I went through a time of approximately, I would even say five to 10 years where that was uh, at risk. And for me, I think the, the number one thing that came up in my mind was this trying to navigate the evolutionary principles that I was being taught at the university that seemed to hold quite a bit of sense to my Christian context, which wouldn't even consider that word in any shape, form, or fashion. That actually kind of became one of the, the central things uh, for, I don't know, maybe it's similar for other Christians as well, but it, I think it's because of the time. This was the 70s, 80s, 90s, where a lot of this was front and center in the church. I really felt like you had to kind of pick a side through a lot of that time. And unfortunately, I didn't have very many Christian mentors who could help me navigate through that space. And so I was left to kind of feel my way around in that space uh, as I could through readings that I did, listening to uh, anyone I could that broached that topic and actually uh, brought it to the table. So for me, it was about a period of time where I really went through a kind of a heart time of thinking, you know, is my faith strong enough to hold through this? And what am, is this truly a conflict? And and I guess I was a little bit on the lucky side because I decided to not throw either one of them out the window, but rather try to see if there's any kind of uh, middle ground. And as I got into that and started reading more deeply, and then more authors started to be uh, writing about things like this, and I found that there was some middle ground that made a lot of sense. And over the years, that middle ground actually got quite a bit in, uh, larger over the time because there's just more people that are willing to speak to this uh, area that you don't have to be opposed to science to be a Christian and Christians can embrace science and scientists can embrace Christianity. And I think this is something that we all should look at more healthy than probably we have done in the past. So I kind of got there and I think it was probably in my 40s that that kind of started to really resonate well. And then it, it became clear to me that many people are really struggling in this area. So sort of from uh, the last 10, 15, 20 years, I've been trying to do uh, more ways, more conversations. I've done some public talks about trying to reconcile uh, these differences, mostly within the church community, because it's often the church community that's more resistant than the non-church community, because they were brought up very similar to me and that you had to pick a side. And, and so sometimes it's educating our Christian believers to consider a broader scope of uh, what 
some of these issues can look like with the science information that we currently have today. Do you know what's interesting as well that I've I've noticed it's very much a North American issue as well. When when I'm in the UK or elsewhere, I find that it's not nearly as contentious of an issue. That there seems to be a more level of openness and dialogue. I think we really do have a history with this that affects the way that we have dealt with it and continue to. You could take that all the way back to the Scopes Monkey trial. And I think you could even push it even farther. No, I agree 100%. But it's interesting, the more you you get do a deep dive into this area, you realize that there are a lot of scientists who actually have very deep and, and committed faith. Here at Western, I have many colleagues who are very active Christians. And I think uh, years ago, maybe we wouldn't um, see that as much, or maybe it wasn't as transparent as it is today. But I think also that that group is also engaging more in in their own way, and either through their churches or through um, other outreach opportunities. So I think we're seeing this idea that there's a very healthy middle ground here where scientists can actually speak to Christians and they can speak to scientists and and sort of live in that tension as it is. The other thing that's happened over the years is, of course, the the more sense of inclusion. So including someone who's a scientist and who is a Christian is in the scope of, uh, you know, this is what they believe. If they are good people and they're doing their jobs well, um, then they, they should be embraced. And I think that also is becoming more evident over the years as well. No, it's interesting that my story is fairly similar to yourself in that when I became a Christian and you start going to church, I immediately found this tension, particularly with regards to evolution. Those who've listened to the show for a while, you've heard me refer to this story because I developed what I call the false dilemma that I saw in the church and I bought into was this idea that if evolution could be proven true, then Christianity must be false. But vice versa, if evolution could be proven false, then ev- then Christianity must be true. And sadly, it just it took me far too many years to realize that that's a false dilemma. And that is absolutely bad logic. I, in fact, know a number of people who are skeptical of neo-Darwinism, but they're not Christian, nor do they have any intention of being, and vice versa. So, did you experience it similar to what I'm saying, kind of this idea of if you could prove one or disprove one? Yeah, no, I think that was kind of the way it came to me, is uh, like you had to pick a side, and um, and if one was proven wrong, then therefore um, uh, the other must be right, and and that sort of idea. But I think the sadness of some of this, too, is that what grew out of that was this skepticism around science. Then if this is an issue, then there may be other issues that we're going to be skeptical about as well. And I think it it can lead to a very unhealthy place where we end up challenging science and things that become uh, very well understood and very clear and yet we become skeptical about it because of some of these predispositions that we had earlier on in our lives for whatever reasons. So I think we have to kind of navigate through some of that as well. And, you know, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, science corrects itself frequently in the sense that's part of the scientific pathway is that, like, if I was to discover something today and I was to write a paper and it once it's out into the public uh, context and my scientific colleagues will look at that discovery and decide if they can, does it make sense? They'll reproduce it in their own laboratories. And eventually things move up the ladder to the point that it moves from just defining to something that we can call a fact and ultimately becomes ingrained in society as, as a truth. But it's a process. And, and, um, and I think we have to accept that process because just because something in literature and the media gets shown to be wrong um, and now and then, it doesn't mean that all science is wrong and it's all, it is because it's an imperfect system to some degree, but it also has a self-correcting mechanism and that when things are wrong, other scientists will eventually be able to show that that's not the way it works. They got it partly right or, and, but here's the way it really works. And, you know, you start refining it and, and it is a pathway to understanding truth. 
So I, I, I'd like to think that that's what the future holds as that is the, as we move forward, um, Christians and will also see that science is, is moving in the right way. Um, and it is a noble profession and, and scientists are not trying to discount the existence of God. Um, but they're trying to understand the natural world. And that's what it's about. It's understanding the natural world. And then they have to decide, as everyone does, is how do you think the natural world came about? And for some people to say, well, I don't want to consider a God clause, call it that. And other people say, absolutely, God's at the center of this. And for me personally, I see that this reveals God. And but for some now, other people, they will not see it that way. No. Wouldn't you think that that requires then an openness, particularly with regards to the way that you see the nature of the universe, such that if you see the universe as a closed system, then certain conclusions are possible and certain conclusions are not possible. Whereas if you see the universe as potentially open, again, certain conclusions then are a possibility. So my point in in bringing that up is, it could be the case then, and I and I think it is, that there's some people that when they come to the sciences, God's just not even a possibility because of the presuppositions, not because of the science. Yeah, I think that's fair. Because you have to you have to bring that opportunity or openness into the equation. Um, in the same way I look at, say, the biochemistry of how something works and the intricate details of how proteins are made or DNA turns into proteins. I see an exquisite machinery of incredible sophistication that I can look at it and say, I believe this reveals uh, the creativity of God and in, in how to build things. And it's because I'm open to that. Like I'm open to God being part of that equation. But equally, somebody else could look at that same data set and say, well, that's just showing an, a Darwinian evolutionary program that happened over millions of years that doesn't reflect any God design in it, but rather just as a randomness in that giving enough time, something like that could happen. And that's where we are today. So in both cases, it's what is your predisposition to what are you willing to consider? And as Christians and scientists who are Christians often come into it from the point of view of this reveals the wonder and grandeur of God. And that's what gives us peace and gives us hope is because we see God in that. And I, and I think that's very powerful. And, and that's why I, one of the things I often say to people is that science will never discover anything that will eliminate God. Never. So don't be worried about doing scientific inquiry. Don't be worried about doing uh, experimentation to understand how things work, because maybe if I lo- learn too much, it'll destroy God. Like that's not ha- that can't happen. It just it's a it's one of those principles that is not doable. And so, so, you know, embrace it and and see what you can reveal. Uh, You know, you go back to scripture and, you know, you think about Jesus's followers and and they were empowered to go out and heal. Well, I, I often think about what are we doing today in that form of healing and helping people? Well, a lot of that comes through how we use our brains and how we actually apply that to a question so that we can come up with a good cure or treatment, or a vaccine, or something that will actually heal people. And I think when we do that, I think that gives God pleasure. And and in God saying, you know what, I gave you all the clues, I gave you the brain to do it, and I'm so excited to see that you're actually applying it to do what Jesus walked the earth to do, and that is to heal people. And and I guess this is just my view, but I, I just sort of see that as God smiling and saying, I gives him pleasure. I think it's a very tangible way that we can love people. And that's what we're called to do is to love people. And in the sciences, it's a very tangible way to do that when we seek to deal with somebody's cancer or or whatever it might be or hearing loss or whatever. I mean, that's a very loving thing to do. And, and I absolutely agree with you that those are good and right things that we, that we should do with our science. Now, I want to back up a little bit because I want to talk about – uh, an issue here that I that I think needs to be addressed with regards to the church, because one of the things that I've oh, that I've appreciated about you and in, in your approach to the subject is an openness. It's a call to openness to the scientist that maybe has never thought about God before, and it's a call of openness to the scientist who has 
thought about God or, or is a committed Christian. I think one of the major concerns, and, I've, and I know you've brought this up before, is, and, we, and we already were, were getting in this, is, is that oftentimes you're being pushed into a camp. And I think that this becomes where I continue to see the rub. And I found this for myself, Dale, by a person that I figured I took a middle ground. When this was all being pushed on me, I took the ground of intelligent design and I thought, great, I'm in the middle. I should be fine, right? But no, I was just then hated by both sides. The young earth creationist didn't like me and the theistic evolutionist didn't like me. And it's one of those things where I began to realize, man, there, and this is, I think, even just a part of science itself, is just a willingness to give that space for exploration. What would you say to that? Yeah, I, all of what you said is correct. And I guess I keep coming back to this word grace. And I think as scientists who are Christians speaking in any context, we have to understand that you got to evoke a lot of grace and how people will come to you, how you're perceived by people as well. So going back to that, uh, you know, I, I teach this course in, on, in God Created, and we talk about nine different worldviews on creation, and one of them is intelligent design. One of them is theistic evolution, which now a lot of people will call evolutionary creationism, or there's six-day creationists, and there's lots of different worldviews that evoke God as the creator, but people still get offended if they don't come out where they see things fitting. And I think this is a challenge. It's a challenge in the church. It's a challenge outside the church. But I think we we got to understand that there's got to be some grace in this because we're going we're gonna to land in different places. And you may actually even change your position from where you were when you're 20 years old to when you're 40 or when you're 60. And that you you see you understand things better. The Holy Spirit works in your in your life. Uh, you you have a lot of information that comes through science and other means that sort of leans you towards another worldview. The central point, though, I think for Christians is to keep coming back to core questions. And the core question here is not about the mechanism. The core question is, do you believe God's the creator? And if you take that as your core question, then your answer comes out with a lot more unity than division. Um, because then you can go to your Christian colleague and you say, do you believe God's your, the creator? And they say, yeah, absolutely, for sure. And they may take it down a different road than you might go. But at the same time, there's a sense of unity to begin with. And now there's got to be an understanding that grace can can take you from that point onward. Because everyone will have some divergence at some point. And it's very difficult to get two people in the room that are exactly in the same spot. And just like what you said about intelligent design, some people could be in the room and and say, yeah, Andy, that's that's where I am. We're good. Let's, you know, we're buddies now. And but at the same time, you might have somebody in the room and says, Well, I'm a young earth six-day creationist. And you're gonna say, Well, yeah, we're buddies because we leave God's the creator, and that's where you gotta keep it at. And everybody's got to navigate this themselves. This is not something that you can enforce on somebody, it's something that they have to find their peace with, and they have to more importantly give that grace when they go out into the big world. Because one of the things I think I try to emphasize a lot is don't create barriers to Christ. So if you go into the world and you say, okay, everybody's got to be an intelligent designer or they're not going to find Christ, then I think we create a barrier. Um, if everybody has to be a theistic evolutionist, we have to, did we create a barrier? Let people find their way with it because what we don't want to do is we don't want to create barriers that are unnecessary because of how we interpret scripture and how we interpret the science feeding into scripture. And I keep coming back to the science, I think, allows us to explore the natural world. But on the other side of the coin, we have the Bible and we have scripture and we have what scripture is giving us. And those two are not in conflict with each other, but they inform on each other. And this is this sort of two way talk between these two different elements of, of both of which are gods at the center of. So I think I think it's that issue of keep the barriers down um, if we can, as Christians, if we can allow the grace to keep the central point in place, allow the grace to places where we just don't know exactly how this came down. Uh, we all favor our models, but let's keep it at what we do know. And, and I think we, we land back onto this principle of God being the creator. 
So it, it's it's a tricky walk, but it's a walk that can be had. I completely uh, agree with you. I think that is absolutely the case. I can illustrate that <laughs> easily from my own life. I have many friends that are across the spectrum on this, that are young earth creationists, old earth creationists, that are, you know, theistic evolutionists, or are, what, what's this new one that, that they're saying, evolutionary creationism? Or Yeah, so that's sort of like a rebrand of theistic evolution. So it's a, it's a question of how, where you put your emphasis on evolutionary creationism puts the emphasis on creation, uh, where the other was the reverse, if you think of it as theistic uh-huh. evolution, so... And I think that this is this is absolutely right to allow that grace. Um, so much so, like, Dale, I don't even know where you sit on this position. Uh, I know you're in there somewhere, and quite truthfully, I don't care. I think that there's a level of grace there to say, hey, brother, I realize you're working through this. Uh, I'm working through this. Um, I think that the concern for me comes where we begin to make this a gospel issue, and it really— disheartens me when I'll see people part ways with each other. Now, I'm not saying that this can't lead to a place where it becomes a gospel issue, but I think that's true of anything and could be then potentially unorthodox or or whatever. I mean, because listen, I've come across some really interesting theologies, but that could come from any, any, any direction. But this is a sad one to me that I think, as you've just said, so many unnecessary barriers get put up. Let me just ask you from from your experience. Now, now you have to understand I've been a pastor for 20 years, so so my experience is from the pulpit perspective of looking out to the congregation. Uh with your experience of being somebody, you know, scientist that that's in the church, what have been some of your frustrations um and have you felt and by that I mean like have you have you felt unvalued by the church or unwelcome? Or is that overstating it? No, I, I I felt very welcomed by the church today, um, and I, I say that in my current church, I think is very open to a broader spectrum of taking on some of these questions and allowing the grace to have the conversations. And the case in point, when I was thinking about putting this course together a few years ago, I, we we rolled this out uh, this course. And I should probably explain here, by this course, you mean that you taught a course on this subject for your church? Yes. Yeah, as an elective in the church. So uh, a fellow pastor of of mine, a friend, and I were talking about this issue of dealing with the evolution creation piece and the worldviews on creation. And we decided to do a course in 2017 was the first time we did it. And the idea was, could we do this in the walls of the church? Because we're going to talk about Darwinian evolution. We're going to spell all of the models out. And we had sort of three premises to, to as a baseline for the course. One was that we're going to make it very clear that we believe God is a creator. And the second premise is we're not going to tell you what to believe. And third one is that we want you to understand we're not going to tell you what we believe in this issue because we don't want you to just adhere to what, let's say, the teachers are saying. So we want you to navigate this independently with the information that we're going to provide. And it's going to be very much provoking questions and discussion, and, and but everyone's going to have to wrestle with it as adults, as we do with many issues, and try to come to a peace and understanding with where you fit. But the, the interesting thing, and talk about the, the, uh, the church in this, uh, I was very pleased to see that the leadership of the church was willing for us to do it within the walls of the church. Um, it was very well received. We got virtually no negative feedback. A lot of um, very good conversations. It was highly subscribed to. So it turned out to be a very positive experience. So you mentioned about the first part of your question was, what could we do as a church? Well, one of the things I've been sort of an advocate for, and I think maybe, and I just want to say about any specific church, but church in general, let's call it the, the big C church is I think we have to do kind of more of what your organization is doing with Apologetics Canada. We have to have the more thoughtful, deeper conversations because this is real world stuff. It is not things that we can just uh, ignore. There is just things that are, that are going on 
that require deeper understandings in the culture that we live in, the 2020 culture, that maybe we shy away from and maybe we just don't have those conversations enough. So one of my, I wouldn't call it a frustration, I guess it's one of my um, wishes (laughs) or hopes and dreams is that the church um, will become more comfortable with having the tougher conversations. And those includes things like, and going back to creation evolution is to, because our, our kids, our children are in that landscape, landscape and they're hearing the stuff all the time. So for the church not to say, okay, let's talk about this more openly, is kind of like saying, well, we're just not going to, we're just going to ignore it and maybe it'll go away. And it's not going to go away. It's going to grow. And then there'll be more issues that'll come up and they'll they'll grow. And so I think we have to continue to, for the use of uh, maybe not a better word, but the church has to evolve with the issues of the day. And there are issues today that we wouldn't have talked about 50 years ago. We wouldn't have talked about 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Um, but today we would and we should. And and I think my dream is that the church can openly embrace some of these uh, these tougher issues and in a healthy discussion, maybe bringing in people that are experts in that area to kind of help navigate through it. Um, because I think, and you being a pastor can probably speak to this, uh, you might say, well, I'm not an expert on all these things, so I don't feel comfortable talking about them. But at the same time, you're well-connected. You have people who you can bring in to help navigate it as a team, make a plan, figure out how to roll this topic out nicely and in a way that's constructive. And and I think we can do that. But I think maybe we have to look at our teaching methods to include that kind of recipe so that we can be bringing these contemporary and very critical issues to the table within the church context. Yeah. Which again, I, I think won't happen unless there's that level of grace there. Because I, I want to I want to mention with this, that doesn't mean that I agree with everybody. There's plenty of people I disagree with, but I'm willing to listen to them. And I'm willing to walk through this question with them, you know, that requires some humility and, and allows you to hear from their perspectives and allows you to share your own as you're working through this issue. Because I, I quickly began to realize that this issue is not going away. You know, science will continue to progress. We'll continue to learn more about the universe and whatnot, and we'll continue to wrestle through questions of creation. I mean, that's just – that's our reality. And I don't think it's something that we should be afraid of. I, like you said, I think it's something that's quite exciting, in fact, and leads me to worship. Now, one thing I've been noticing that I think is a step in the right direction, particularly in the area of publication, is that there are more and more books that are coming at these questions from – a multiplicity of views. And they'll often be called like, you know, five views or four views of such and such. And then what they're doing is they're giving you different voices to the question so that you can start to hear how people are wrestling with this because it is complicated stuff. And to let you in on some closed door conversations, this stuff is happening at the Evangelical Philosophical Society, the Evangelical Theological Society, which I have uh, have attended for the last eight years that's what's happening there. So evangelicals are coming from around the country. And as they do, they will have panel discussions in which a variety of different voices are speaking to an issue and Q&A is taking place. Because that's the only way I think that we're going to, in a healthy way, come at these sorts of complicated issues, which ultimately is going to need to be modeled in the church. But I would say, Dale, that that people won't do this if they're entrenched in a view, because oftentimes what happens is is to hear a different view is seen as potentially weakness or it's seen as vulnerability. I think that there is there's a lot of fear for some people because they've maybe perhaps made a certain view the entirety of their faith. The, the, if that foundation goes, they're afraid the whole thing will go. And then what happens, though, is you get closed off. You're not willing to talk. You're not willing to listen. And this is something that I know is at the center of your heart as mine. We, Our children are right in the midst of this, and they're dealing with a barrage of questions that they're trying to wrestle through that's not simple stuff. It's going to require a variety of voices as they're trying to navigate that. But I think the goal is is to provide them that that freedom and that space to work through that and to do that with them. That I think uh, that I know for a fact with myself was incredibly healthy. 
Yeah, I, I think a good way to think about this is the churches can think about this idea of negotiables and non-negotiables and, and make it very clear that this is the core of our faith. This is the non-negotiables. These are what we believe as a church, as our community. Um, and then let's look at this other camp. And this other camp is the negotiables. So we got the non-negotiables clear. We're very, these are foundational issues. Now look, let's look at the negotiable ones. And what are the aspects that are culturally involved today that the church can speak into, but there's going to be a lot of different viewpoints on. So let's discuss those because this is where I think we can demonstrate some grace. And by doing that, if we believe the church's mission is to reach others, and we're trying to grow the kingdom, if we don't show that grace and we just say these are the lines in the sand and we're doing that in the negotiable category, we're going to turn a lot of people off because they're not going to be able to find themselves on the right side of that line. So we have to be able to kind of compartmentalize the things that are the core components of the faith. And let's look at the ones that are there's, there's some room here to think about this more broadly. There's room here for more grace in a lot of these areas because we maybe there's just not enough information to know all of the answers and there will be some different worldviews. And I think that's not a bad way to kind of get through this and, uh, and, then, yeah. and then spend time on those negotiable ones to allow people to realize that the, the church does see this as a complex issue. They do see it as something that needs a lot of thought. And we're, we're, we're navigating through this um, over time. And maybe we will continue to navigate for your lifetime. We may still be doing this, um, but mm-hmm. because it's in that component of the negotiables. And, and sometimes what happens is the negotiable ones slide over into the non-negotiable ones. And then when we do that, I think we start building walls and we build barriers. And then from a non-believer's perspective, they say, well, wait a minute, I can't get my head around that. And somehow they think that is a core issue to the faith. And, and I think that's where we do harm. Yeah. I call this the theological playground. And what you're getting at here is you're, you're just saying, we're just pointing out where the fence is in the playground. And then we're saying, you, feel, you know, play in the playground, you know, work these sorts of things out. Because as you and I are well aware, there is there are disagreements on a variety of different issues. And I think this is an important issue because some people might misunderstand this. We're not saying that everyone's right. We're saying we're not sure exactly how this works out. And so there's the freedom to work that out for yourself. Now, again, we don't know <laughs> we don't we don't know for sure on certain things. I think so for example, you know, you've got those who are in the playground that are Calvinists or some that are Arminian, some that are Wesleyan, and they're trying to figure that out. But I would say that they're all still in the playground. Yeah. yeah. And I often use this analogy uh, in this uh, negotiable category. Uh, you know, when the time comes that we're gone and we're in, we're in the presence of Christ and, and I think, oh, we're going to have a coffee and we're going to go to Timmy's and I'm going to say, well, here's what I was thinking. And Jesus is going to look at me and he's going to shake his head. No, no, you didn't have that one right. And or he's going to say, yeah, you were really kind of what I was. This is where I was at. And you kind of were moving in that direction. And then other ones. No, no, you got that one wrong because we were trying as our humanness to figure out the best way we could understand things. And I think we'll get some of them right and some of them wrong. But again, we're working in that negotiable zone um, because we're trying to understand from scripture, from revelation, from the science, whatever inputs we have, trying to understand God's character in that particular area. And in the end, we'll get uh, hopefully a good number of them right, and but I'm sure we'll also get some of them wrong. And then for the next person, they'll get different ones right and some other ones wrong. And so this is how it may, may play out in the end. And I, to me, that gives me some comfort. What I take away from this conversation is that heaven is Tim Hortons and that <laughs> one day <laughs> that one day I will get a talk with the Lord about these things and know for certain. For those of you Americans and, and others listening to the show, Tim Hortons is as close to heaven this side as you can get. One of our uh, coffee shops, they, they actually sell all sorts of stuff uh, here. And in, interestingly enough, I was in Ireland and I saw a Tim Hortons in Ireland. Unbelievable. What a world. Hey, as we come to a close here, Dale, uh, what advice would you give 
maybe a scientist that's attending church would love to run something like this that just talks about the different views and and explores this, provides that that freedom in the playground. What advice would you give to them to talk on this issue? Yeah, I, I think uh, they should be more open to the idea than they might be. I think a lot of people were fearful that if they go to their lead pastors or their head pastors and say, I'm looking, I'm interested in um, putting together an elective on one of these topics, I think they may find that their pastors are more receptive than they thought. I think uh, my encouragement, too, would be that the congregants are more receptive than they might think. The advantage of an elective is people that are interested come. And the people who are not interested don't come to the elective. So by definition, you're selecting a group of people who sign up for these things that have burning questions or they're showing evidence that they want to grow in that area. And so I think the advantage of elective is it's sort of self-selecting to some degree. These are the people that are more interested in thinking about that particular item, whatever your topic is, more deeply. And I think the churches are probably more will embrace this more than um, I think some people might be worried about. Uh, To be honest, I thought this is a little bit, I guess I use the word edgy in the church context to do this in the church building. And I was a little bit worried that maybe get some negative mail and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't get any of it. And, um, and the feedback was, was very supportive. I think the church is ready. I, I think the church has grown to a point um, they understand what their kids are going through. They understand that these issues are real issues. Let's have the conversation. So I think there's a more openness to the conversation than maybe there was even 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I think we need to actively engage in this because I think the next generation depends on us. And, and I just close with this idea that if we don't do well with our next generations, the millennials, Generation Z, and all of these people, we will see the church continue to dwindle, certainly in Canada as an example. And we're watching that, and that's happening under our watch. So if we look and say we're doing everything right, then why is the church um, going down in terms of attendance? Why is uh, more people saying that they have very little faith interest Um, So I think we have to do sort of our own self-analysis and say maybe we need to change it up because maybe we need to broaden the way we we do church, broaden our topic zones so that we can do the best we can for the kingdom. And so I think uh, change is is a good thing and uh, bringing these, these types of issues to the table is a good thing. And I think if we don't, we may we may suffer the consequences 10, 20 years down the road when half of the existing churches no longer cease to exist. So um, yeah. so we have to we have to be good citizens and good stewards. Yes, my my prayer is that we would see the church as a place that scientists go and are encouraged in their faith and are inspired in their science, that it's a place that philosophers go and are encouraged in their faith and inspired in their philosophy. The artist goes, <laughs> again, is encouraged and inspired. That's my prayer. Thank you for the work that you do. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks for joining us. This has been another episode of the AC Podcast. We'll come back next week with more things to think about. 